Uh, my name is Fred. I'm one of the pastors here. I am so glad uh, that you have joined us today. Um, we are starting a new series called Guess What? Oh, good. Y'all saw it. That's great. That's great. Yeah, we're starting a new series called Share uh, based on uh, the state of the church from last week um, because, uh, and I'm going to talk about this in just a minute, but, but where we feel like God is leading us as a church, it's important for us to know how to share our life uh, with those around us. To, to introduce them to, to Jesus, how to share our story of how, how we came to know Jesus, if you did, and, and two, how to share in service uh, with those around us. And so when I start today, I'm going to start off, okay, y'all are the second service, so y'all get the distinct advantage of me being able to run through this one time before y'all get here, right, to the first service. Here's what I felt after the first service. This can be a heavy topic where when we talk about sharing our lives, your immediate response is guilt, right? I'm not doing enough. Can we kill that before we get started, right? This isn't where we're going. What I want you to see as we go through this today is what Jesus has done for you deeply, deeply impacts how you treat those around you, right? And so we're going to see what Jesus left when he came to earth, how he did it, and how that impacts us and how we engage with those around us. All right, and so, so, so as we get started, let me ask you a question with that in mind, right? And here's the question. I think most of you will say yes to this. Do you want to have a positive impact on others, right? Um, um, I asked the question. How many of you in your heart or mind or maybe even in a voice to yourself said, yeah, I want to have a positive impact on others, right, right? Now, what I didn't tell you is I'm actually going to give you a qualifier now that may change your answer, right? Because here's what I've seen. To live a life where you are having a positive impact in others, to where, to where you are intentionally living out your life in front of others, you may answer yes to this question because we do. We want to have a life that positively impacts our kids, our friends, our spouses. If you have a boyfriend, girlfriend, you know, like, like you want to have a positive impact on your coworkers. Like, I get that. But here's what I've seen in, in my life and in honestly many of your lives because you're better at this than I am. To be a person that positively influences somebody else's life, there is a qualifier that may give you pause before you answer yes so quickly, and it's this, that you will have to give up what you don't want to give up to impact someone else's life. And here's what I mean by that. To impact someone's life will cost you more than you may want to pay. What is it going to cost? Well, it depends on what you don't want to pay. Right Here's what it's going to cost for some of us. And this is my camp, the comfort camp. Right, I enjoy comfort. And I don't mean like a big comfy couch, although I do. I mean like I like order in my life. I like routine in my life. But here's, just, just to give you a heads up, here's what's crazy about me. I like routine until I get bored of it, right? And then I'm ready for a new routine. I like comfort. For me to intentionally invite others into my life means that I have to relinquish some of that comfort. Maybe for you, it's freedom that you have to release. Like this freedom that you have in Christ is real and it is good. But like Paul in the New Testament said, he gave up some of his freedom so that others may come to know Christ. 
To the Jew, he, he was a Jew. To the Gentile, he was a Gentile. And so he knew what he could do and what he couldn't do in order to win people to Christ. For some of us, it may be our precious time that we have to give up to impact someone else's life. And so let me ask you again, knowing the answer will cost you more than you want to pay, let's repeat that question. Do you want to have a positive impact on others? If your answer is still yes, then I hope that this message today will be a great encouragement to you. Because today, here's what we're going to see. We're going to see how to position your life in such a way so that no matter what it costs you, it's going to seem like a small price to pay based on what Jesus has done for you. All right, so, so today, here's what we're going to do. We're going to be in John chapter 1. We're going to do verses 1 through 14. If you need a Bible, there's some in front of you. It's on page 735 in that Bible. You can also find us on the app. Uh, the Bible app is what it's called. Look under events and click under Fellowship Asheville and the, and the text is there. Along with some questions to help kind of, as you think about today's message, some questions to go through. And as you're turning there, uh, we are doing this three-week series called Share. Um, uh, where it's based off the state of the church that Nick and I did last week, where we talked about how we believe God is asking this church to be more intentional about our interactions with those who don't have a church. That we really feel like God is asking us to be intentional, to be a church for those who don't have a church. And that is a broad spectrum of people. It could be people that don't know Jesus at all, but they know you. And they might be opposed to this whole Christian thing, but you they love. And so they, they're, they're curious to see what it is that you do on Sunday mornings and what it is that you do when you go to growth group. And, 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 and so we want to be a place for them that is safe, where they hear the gospel and they get to see and meet who Jesus is. It could also be the person that does know Jesus, but, but honestly, they've been in and they've been around church and they've given up on it. They've had bad experiences. Maybe it didn't meet their expectations, or maybe they were under someone who acted more like a wolf than a shepherd. And that happens. And maybe when you say you go to, you know, you're a Christian, they automatically assume that what you do, they don't want to be a part of. We want to be a place that's safe for them to see and experience the grace of God. Because I've seen. Some of you have bad church experiences and you come here. And what draws you here is that gospel. And we want to be more intentional about that. And so today we're going to see and, and hopefully kind of be on the same page about what it means to intentionally engage with those around us. And so what we're going to do is in John, we're going to see where Jesus came from first. Now John is an artist in many ways. He writes like an artist. I think he thinks like an artist. You know, you have Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which are the gospel, the, the gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And, and they're in kind of chronological order. John picks and chooses from all over Jesus' life and throws it together. And he uses words like light and dark and word and, and believe. And so, so, so sometimes John is a little complicated to go through. But I've got this creative bent in me. I love reading the book of John. For some reason, it speaks to me. And, and, and this, this first little bit of John, I think, is beautiful because it helps us understand what Jesus came from to come here. And so look at, at John chapter 1, verse 1. It says, In the beginning was the Word, 
And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And so here's kind of John's artistry coming out. He's talking about Jesus, but he uses the word what to describe Jesus? Word. He uses the word word to describe Jesus. In the beginning was the word. And and what he describes here is this complete unity and harmony between between God the Father and God the Spirit and God the Son, that, that God was all together, and he was complete, and he was happy. Now, when I was in seminary, this is what they taught me, that this is God being with God and complete contentment and complete joy and complete happiness, that God didn't need humanity. And I understand that, but I don't comprehend it, right? When I think about being completely harmonious with those around me and complete unity with those around me, completely joyful with those around me, I don't have a good grasp of what that could be like. As a matter of fact, when I was, when I was preparing for this, I kind of was like, okay, I'm going to try and mentally picture my favorite day with my favorite person just to get a glimpse of what this would be like. And so what I did, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take you with me for a little bit because I was, in my mind, I was on my back deck it was 78 degrees, but the sun was setting, so we're in the shade, and there was a slight breeze. So that's just perfect, right? And we're sitting there, me and my wife, sitting at this rickety table that we have on our back deck, and we're just talking. And it is this, this perfect moment in my head. There's a steak on the grill right next to me, right? And the breeze is blowing it over us so I can smell it, you know? And, 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 and it is complete. We're unified, It's harmonious, but here's the problem with even that picture that I realized. I'm still the center of it. Like, it's still about me. It's what my perfect day is, what my perfect time is. And so even that is limited. What John is describing here is God being with God in complete unity, and that's where Jesus came from. He came from this complete perfection. And so as we dive in, we need to understand that Jesus lived in perfection, right? Where he was before he came to earth was complete and unified and harmonious. Look at verse 3. It says, all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. In other words, John is looking at creation now and he's saying everything that we see and everything that we have seen was created by Jesus. He was there and he was creating all of this stuff. And when we read Genesis and we look at the Garden of Eden, because that's where John's kind of taking us. And he said, when you look at the Garden of Eden, God looked, God the Father looked at Jesus' creation and he declared it what? Good. And then Jesus created Adam and Eve. He created man. And God said, not only is it good, it is what? Very good. So not only did Jesus live in perfection, Jesus' work was perfect. Like the things that Jesus made were perfect. At the end of the day, he could look at what was accomplished and he would say, man, what a perfect day. That was good. No, that was actually very good. Like his work was perfect. Look what else was perfect in verse 4 and 5. It says, In him was life, and the light, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So not only was, was where Jesus lived in perfection, not only was what he did perfect, 
but he had this perfect purpose, right? His, his job was to be the light that pushed back darkness. And he was the light of humanity. And John says that, that in this world where, where Jesus dwelled, there was perfection. His work was perfect and his, and his purpose was perfect. That his purpose was to put evil in its place and to keep evil separate from the perfection that, that, that he lived in. His, his job was to push it back. And so, so Jesus' purpose was perfect. And so John is showing us this picture of perfection, that not only did he live in perfection, his work was perfect. His purpose was perfect, because guess where John is going to go? He left all of that. He left it behind. Paul will say he did not consider equality with God something to be held onto, something to be grasped, but he let it go. Why? Why did he leave that? Because y'all, How many of you want to look at the end of your day and go, it was perfect? How many of you want to look at the people around you and say, this is perfection? And if it was, how many of you would want to leave it? Well, Jesus did. So the question, the question, that's right, the question is why? Why would Jesus leave it? Jump down to verse 9. It says this, it says, The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. So now John moves from Genesis to kind of summarize the whole Old Testament. Because in Genesis we see Adam and Eve in the garden and, and they sin. And when they sin it creates this separation from God because God is holy. Right? And anything that's holy can't be around anything that's not because then that thing becomes unholy. And Adam and Eve sinned and it created this separation from God. And so what God does is he walks in the garden with them and he covers up their nakedness as a picture of, of covering up their sin. Because it says in Genesis, you know, they covered themselves up with leaves which die and crumble and fade away. And that's what religion looks like when we work and try and make God happy. But what Jesus, what God did is he came and he sacrificed an animal and made clothes for them. So from the very beginning, there's this whisper That for them to have a right relationship with God, there is going to be a sacrifice that has to take place. And then God, when he's talking to the serpent, he tells the serpent, I will send one who will crush your head. You will bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. And in Genesis 3.15, that starts this unveiling of the Old Testament of who this one is that is coming. And John says in the Old Testament, we see that there was one who is coming. We see the anticipation of Jesus. We see that the perfect will leave perfection to dwell with the imperfect. They will be one who comes. But why? Why would Jesus do this? Why have the perfect leave perfection just to be surrounded By the imperfect. Look at verse 10. It says, He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. So Jesus, he was in this perfect place. He was the perfect person in this perfect place with perfect work and perfect purpose. And he came to face our imperfection. The people he created, the nation of Israel, humanity, the people that he came to, it says that they didn't recognize him. They didn't know him. Let me tell you what that's like. 
At our house, we've got a dog and a cat, right? Raise your hand if you know where this is going, right? We've got a dog named Addie. And when Addie hears that garage door open and me come in, she runs to our laundry room. That's where the door to the garage is and where I come in. And when I open that door, she is there every single day, tail wagging, literally her head bowed because she wants me to rub her head, and, and, and she is there for me. She knows who her master is, and she is ready to see him. That's Addie. We've also got Oliver, the cat. Oliver, when he decides to grace us with his presence, right, at best tolerates us. We are not his master, right? We provide food, shelter, and clean that thing's litter box. And to him, that's what we are. We are not his master. We are his butler, maid, and janitor. Jesus, when he left, imagine what this is like. Jesus, when he left perfection, came to a world of cats. Right? Tweet that. If anybody's still on Twitter, I don't know. But that's what he did. Because the people that he came to didn't know him, didn't recognize him. That's what he came to. Look at verse 12. But to all, because this is, this is the why. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, so it's not about family line, nor of the will of the flesh, not because you want it, nor of the will of man, but of God. You see, this is why the perfect left perfection to be surrounded by us, the imperfect, to be surrounded by a world of cats. You see, this imperfect world is imperfect because of sin. Sin that started back in the Garden of Eden and has continued ever since. Sin that separates humanity from the God who created them. And sin is this churchy word, but what it means is, is, is it's anything that's opposed to God. Anything that God says to do and isn't done, or anything that God says don't do. don't do and we do like any of those that is sin and some of them are big and some of them are small but it doesn't matter the size the the consequence is the same it's separate from a holy God because we have a God who is holy and he is sinless and we can't have a relationship with him unless something is done about that sin And that is why Jesus came, is to deal with that sin. John will later go on to say this in chapter 3, verse 16, which thanks to to football, most of us know, right? says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. You see, when Jesus came, He didn't become imperfect. He was the perfect man and came into imperfection so that we could experience the perfect God. And he did it because of what does John say for God so what the world? God so loved the world. 
And here's what's hard for us to understand. When we look at verses 1 through 4, that God was very happy, very content in, 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 in what was going on. He didn't need us, but yet love compelled him. All of our love usually is based on need. God's wasn't. It was based surely and purely on love alone, which John would write in another book that God is love. Like he's the definition of it. Because he's willing to show this sacrifice of sending the perfect into the imperfect so that the imperfect can experience the perfect. You see, our perfect God wants you and me in the middle of our imperfect world, in the middle of our imperfect life to believe in his perfect son. That's our gospel. Because when we believe in Jesus, what John says is that we get to have this father-child relationship with God. And it is permanent and it is love. You see, God's love for the imperfect, for us, is what compelled him to send this perfect Jesus from perfection to imperfection so that we, the imperfect, can meet the perfect God. Say that ten times fast. You see, love moved the perfect to be with the imperfect. This is what Jesus did. It's what he did for me. It's what he did for you. And so let me say right now, if you haven't believed in this work of Jesus, do so today. Because this is what our faith is based on is that Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection paved the way so that you can have this relationship with the perfect God. And so you can say it in your heart, you can say it in your mind, you can even say, Jesus, I believe in you that his death and resurrection paved the way for you to be called a child of God. You see, this is why the perfect came to imperfection. But y'all watch this because John is going to show us how he did it. And it's the same way we do it with others. Look at verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Now, y'all, I'm going to tell you, I could spend the entire message on this one verse, right? I could probably do an entire series on this one verse, but I'm going to pick one word out of it. And it's the word dwelt. Now, does anybody in the translation you're reading have a word different than dwelt? Does anybody have tabernacled by any chance? Because that's what the word means, and some translations use that. Because what John is doing, I love it. This is where he's this artist. Because what he's doing is he's taking this word from the Old Testament that the Jewish population would understand and saying, this is what Jesus did for us. And, And so he creates this word tabernacled. And, and let me tell you about the tabernacle. The tabernacle was, was in, in the book of Exodus when the nation of Israel wandered in the desert. And it was this tent that they would put up. Everywhere they would go, they would put up this tent. And there were very specific rules about, about how to put this tent up and the, and the layout of this tent and what went in this tent. And as the nation traveled around, whenever God would say stop, they would stop and put this tent up. And the reason they did this is because this is the place where they met with God. 
And so this nation, in the middle of their imperfection, like literally their imperfection, if you remember the story of the nation of Israel, God delivered them miraculously out of the rule of Egypt. And they're traveling through the desert to the promised land that God had promised them. He promised Abraham this land. And this is years and hundreds of years later that the nation is going back to this promised land. But something happens that, that keeps them from going in. And what happened was that they sinned. They didn't trust God and they took their faith into their own hands and they sinned. And as the consequence of that sin, God said, you will wander in the desert for 40 years until this entire generation passes away except for two guys who didn't sin. And they will be able to enter the promised land. But here's the greatness of our God. Y'all, when we get mad at our kids and they're in trouble, we send them to their room until we can calm down, they can calm down, and we can talk about it like somewhat rational humans, right? God didn't do that. He said, I'm going to send you on a journey for 40 years, and I'm not going to meet you at the end of that journey. I'm going to go through that journey with you. And God literally met them in their imperfection and traveled with them in their imperfection and gave them a place where they could meet with him, the perfect God, in the middle of their imperfection. And John says, y'all, listen, Jesus did that for us. He was our tabernacle. He was the one who allowed us to see the perfect God in the midst of all of our imperfection. He said, in Jesus, the imperfect meets the perfect God. That's what Jesus did. And then, in Jesus' life, Matthew picks this up, where he told his disciples, so it's, the end of, it's after the resurrection, is before the ascension, the end of Matthew, Jesus gives these last words, and I mentioned it in this day of the church, and he told his disciples to go, and he told them to go and do what? To make disciples. He told them to baptize people in the name of the Father, the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. In other words, to bring those who don't know Jesus, to use your life, to show them who Jesus is, and then to teach them everything I have commanded you. And then he gives them this promise, and I am with you always to the very end of the age. In other words, guess what? In this imperfect world, I'm going to tabernacle with you as you do this. And this idea of, of being this place where the imperfect can meet the perfect, this is what he told his disciples to do. He said, go and make disciples. In other words, he told them, go and, and tabernacle with people. Now, here's why this is important. Because it worked. Because guess what? We're here in Asheville, North Carolina, because somebody on that hillside with Jesus tabernacled with someone, allowed them to be to, to, to this imperfect place to meet this perfect God. That person tabernacled with someone. That person was an imperfect person introducing people to this perfect God. That someone tabernacled with someone and so on and so on and so on until someone tabernacled with you. And they were the imperfect person introducing you to a perfect God. That's what we mean by, by sharing your life. You see, we tabernacle so that others might meet our perfect God. We share our life because we, the imperfect, 
We had an imperfect person tabernacle with us so that we could meet the perfect God. This is how we make someone's life better. Now, y'all, I asked you at the beginning, do you want to make someone's life better? And you said yes, and I said it's going to cost you something. The reason it costs you something is because it costs our Savior something. Our life changes because of what he did. You see, you tabernacle with them so that they can meet Jesus. But remember, I did say it would cost you something. Well, guess what it costs you? It'll cost you what you probably don't want to give up. Because, y'all, being a tabernacle takes time. Right? Being a tabernacle for someone, being that imperfect person that introduces people to a perfect God takes time. In Exodus, the tabernacle took time to set up. It took time to tear down. It took time to move it. And it was used for decades. You see, to tabernacle with others, here's what it means. It means that we have friends, not projects. Right? I, if you want to make a vein pop out on my head, like I have veins that do, I don't. Um, but if I, if I did, then tell me that you're working on someone. Right? Projects require work and projects have deadlines. Friendships might require work, but they are certainly not deadlines. Friendships require relationships. When we intentionally tabernacle with people, it takes time because we're developing friends, not projects. I have a guy in my life, Victor, who was the tabernacle for me. He was the place that I met the perfect God, and he is incredibly imperfect. But he introduced me to the perfect God. And you know what Victor gave me? Time. Lots and lots of time. I got to meet Jesus because Victor gave me time. Look at what else being a tabernacle takes. It takes intentionality. It takes purpose and intentionality. Y'all, like I said, that tabernacle, there were rules that, that the, of, of, of how they set it up, the positioning of it. Jesus was sent from the perfect to the imperfect for a purpose so that those who do believe can have this father-child relationship with a God who loves him. Can I tell you what it means to dwell intentionally with people? Last week in the state of the church, the, 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 the main thing that we asked you, the application, was to, to take time and create a list of 10 people in your life who either don't know Jesus or don't have a church home, either or, and to, and to commit to praying for those people. Being intentional means that you had that list, you go through it, and you pray for them. And y'all, I'm gonna tell you, Another step to take. Pray for those 10 people that God will do whatever it takes to show them who Jesus is. And then pray that God in his kindness and mercy will let you be their friend when, they're there, when they hit that spot. Because in you, they get to experience the perfect God. I have a guy named Carl uh, that we've been friends since college. We were great friends in college. We were fraternity brothers. 
Um, I was president of the fraternity. He was vice president of the fraternity. He was this music guy. I was an elementary ed, and the rest of the fraternity were business people. So we kind of clung together, right? And, and we ended up working together at the college years later in the College of Education. And I got to know Carl. Carl is not a believer, and, and I'm not, not to spoil the story, but he's still not a believer. But I prayed for Carl, and we had conversations about faith. And, and one of the prayers that I prayed for Carl is that, God, you will do whatever it takes to, to knock his, his made-up religion under him and just let him come to a place where he needs you. So one day I'm at home and I get this phone call from Carl. And he's weeping. He's crying. And he said, Fred, can I come over? And I said, yeah, man, come, come right now. You want me to meet you? He said, no, I want to come over. Okay. And so he gets there. And he said, I said, what's going on? And he said, he came into his apartment. He and his fiance were living together. And he said, and I caught her cheating on me. Like literally walked in and caught her cheating on him. And as he recounted this story, I know Carl has lots of friends. And he said, for some reason, you're the one I wanted to come to. And I said, Carl, first of all, dude, I am sorry. No one should have to go through this. And I don't have anything to offer you except to pray for you. And that's what I did. And I prayed for Carl. And he's happily married now, not to her. Um, but, but he is happily married. Like, he's still not a believer. But he knew there was something different about my God. And I was his place to meet that God. Like, this is what being intentional means. Intentionally pray for those people on your list and pray that you're the person that they come to. Another way to be intentional is to, gosh, let them see your imperfection. Let them see you apologize. Let them see you ask for forgiveness. Let them see, you that, see the fact that you do need this perfect God. Being intentional means that you understand that everywhere you go, you are the tabernacle for, these, for people to, 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 to meet your perfect God. Just a couple of more. Being a tabernacle takes flexibility. Right? The, the deal with the nation of Israel is that they traveled wherever God told them to go. There was a pillar of fire that led them by, by night, a pillar of, of smoke that led them by day. And when that pillar moved, they packed up tent and, and they, they packed up the tent, they packed up their tents, and they took off and they followed it. What's interesting is somebody did this study where they counted how long the nation of Israel was in each place that it went to. And you know what's amazing about it? There's no pattern to it whatsoever. Sometimes they were at a place for days, sometimes weeks, sometimes months, sometimes longer. And there was no real pattern to it that I can discern, that this guy could discern. They went wherever God told them to go. And to be a tabernacle means that we do the same thing. Right? The disciples followed Jesus everywhere he went, and so do we, being a tabernacle takes flexibility and patience. See, Jesus patiently dwelt with us until we believed in him. And we can patiently tabernacle with people as they 
Believe in him. Here's the other one. Being a tabernacle takes inflexibility. Right? Jesus never became imperfect. He never compromised himself for sin. We, on the other hand, do sin. But we don't have to stay in a pattern of sin. We choose holiness. Because we're followers of Jesus, it means we look different than those who aren't. And I don't mean like, um, like clothes different, although sometimes I do. Let's be clear. But I don't mean like, you know, you know what I don't mean, right? Like, like, I don't mean that. But there is something different about us where we choose holiness. Like when the media freaks out, y'all, I don't know if you know this, but like your faith isn't affected by what happens in the White House. Right? Our faith has survived empires. Our faith has survived dictators. It doesn't matter what happens in the White House. It matters what happens in your house. That is where we choose holiness. Being intentional, and I, I, I want to I say this, being a tabernacle, this is the last one, because I want to make sure it's clear, being a tabernacle takes Jesus. And this is where... I want to make sure that we understand this stuff that I'm talking about isn't a to-do list. It's a to-be list. We tabernacle with Jesus so that we can be with those around us. We be with Jesus so that we can be a tabernacle to those around us. To tabernacle with others, we tabernacle with Jesus. You see, you must be with the perfect God so that people can see the perfect God in you. And so now what I want to do, because when I finished this, I was like, man, this is a lot. This is, this is heavy. And I, and I want us to kind of back up a little bit. And I want us to spend just a little bit of time in prayer listening to the Holy Spirit. Here's what's incredible. For those of you who are in a growth group studying the book of Acts, you know, the nation of Israel followed a pillar of fire. Moses had fire in a bush. When the Holy Spirit came, do you know what happened? There wasn't one pillar of fire that we followed. There were tongues of fire over every believer. We have this relationship with God. John picked up on the fact that Jesus was, was this tabernacle. There was this temporary sense to what he did because he left to go back to perfection. But before he left, he said, listen, gather and pray because I'm going to send one to you. And through him, you will be able to do more than you did through me. And then the New Testament picked up on the fact that, that, that we, our bodies, are temples of God, bricks and mortar, because our relationship with the Holy Spirit is sealed, is what Ephesians says. And so when those tongues of fire came on the believers, it was that, that fact that God is with us. Wherever we go, and that means that he is here in this place. And that means when we take this few minutes to stop and listen to him, he can speak to you. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask him to speak about your list of ten, or maybe somebody that's not even on your list. And what I ask you to do, if you're a follower of Jesus, and even if you're not, I want you to open up your heart to him. 
And I want you to let the Spirit speak to you about who He wants you to tabernacle with. And I'm going to ask Him to give you a name. I'm going to ask Him to give you a picture. I'm going to ask the Spirit of God to do what only the Spirit of God can do. And so we're going to take just a minute to do that. I'm going to pray, and then there's going to be this pregnant pause for a little bit. And then I'm going to pray again, and then we're going to sing this last song of worship. All right, so, so with all this, as we talk about tabernacling, um, let's pray. Jesus, first and foremost, we need you because we are the imperfect that you came to. We are the ones, Father, we are the ones who didn't recognize you until you opened our eyes and we saw. And so, Father, thank you. Thank you for opening our eyes so that we can see. And God, your spirit is here. I know that. And Jesus, what I ask you to do is I ask you to speak to us. Father, I ask us to, I ask you to, to, to speak to each one of us about, about who in our life we can tabernacle with. Who in, who in our life have you already been preparing the way? for us to be able to show them the perfect guide. So, Father, would you speak to us? Give us a picture. Speak a name. Father, I pray that you have done what only you can do and you have led this congregation and you have spoken to those who need to be spoken to and you have given names, you have given pictures, you have given insight. I pray now that you give us courage. Courage to, to take you where you have already done the work ahead of time. Father, I pray that it is to your glory, not ours. In Christ's name we pray, amen.